So let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 27 and give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27. Hear now the word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of uh, Adramantium, uh, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the winds did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of uh, Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the, and the ship, but also of our lives." But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their, their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground uh, on the uh, that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island." When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. 
And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As dawn was about to, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. And then uh, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail uh, to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray and ask that you would enlighten our sin-darkened eyes, that you would remove uh, the darkness of ignorance and of willfulness away from us, that you would enable us clearly to be able to perceive uh, the power and the wisdom and indeed the very testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ within these holy pages. We pray and ask, O Lord, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ and that you would give us a better understanding of who you are, how you work in the world, and all of the blessings that you have given us in Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In 1477, uh, there was a book hunter by the name of Poggio Bracciolini. And he was a papal legate. He was a representative of the Pope. And he had been sent on a mission uh, to scour all of the monasteries and all of the libraries throughout Western Europe because he was supposed to be hunting down rare, uh, rare copies of books. And so as he rummaged through the dimly lit libraries, he inspected volume after volume. He encountered a book that essentially had been lost for uh, nearly a thousand years or more, and it was written by an ancient philosopher who lived in the first century BC, and uh, it was a book by a, a philosopher by the name of Lucretius, and he wrote the title of this book, which was called On the Nature of Things, On the Nature of Things. Now, we might not think that one book, one book that had been lost for actually nearly 1,500 years or more, uh, would change the world. Uh, But there's a a best-selling author and Harvard professor by the name of Stephen Greenblatt who wants us to think otherwise. 
Uh, Professor Greenblatt wrote a 2011 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Swerve, where he documents the ripple effects that happened because of the discovery of this seemingly lost book all the way back in 1477. In a nutshell, what we read in Lucretius's ancient book is that the world was made up of tiny little things called atoms. Uh, and that these atoms essentially chaotically and unpredictably uh, swirled all about. And that sometimes what would happen is one of these atoms would swerve unexplicably, chaotically, unpredictably, and it would collide into other atoms, thereby creating chaotic events in the world. As innocuous as this theory might be, Uh, This book's influence spread throughout all of Europe, and it influenced thinkers such as Voltaire, David Hume, Galileo, Thomas Jefferson, and even in our own day, Albert Einstein. According to Professor Greenblatt, it was this little book that played a significant role in shaping the nature of the modern world in which we live. So what is Professor Greenblatt's book Lucretius's ancient book from the first century BC have to do with the Apostle Paul's shipwreck here in Acts chapter 27. Well, what we may not realize it is that Lucretius's book presents a major stream of pagan thought that was current in Paul's day. For us, Paul's account looks somewhat ordinary because we acknowledge that our lives are in the sovereign hands of the providence of our God, who watches over us each and every moment of our lives. We, moreover, we pray regularly to God because we know that God can and will intervene in our lives uh, to deliver us from problems, to, to the one who will answer our prayers. Moreover, we also know that God, because he is the sovereign creator of all that exists, uh, because he spoke worlds into existence merely by his word, we know that he can and he does uh, perform miracles. In other words, he is able to defy, if you will, the laws of nature and do things that far exceed what nature can do or what we ourselves can do. So as we read Acts chapter 27 here in Luke's book, we might not account it all that significant until we factor in the views of Lucretius. You see, Lucretius was an Epicurean philosopher, and these are some of the very philosophers that the Apostle Paul, remember, engaged in Acts chapter 17 when he was at Mars Hill. And so once we factor in the Epicurean views of Lucretius, I think we can see and understand, I think, why Luke includes Paul's shipwreck here in Acts chapter 27. I think it's especially, we can say, against the backdrop and the darkness of unbelief and false teaching that we can appreciate the light of the truth all the more. You know, if you think about it, if I were to turn on a flashlight at this particular moment, it probably wouldn't strike us as being all that significant. Why? Because we're bathed in light. We have the lights on. We have the natural light of the sun outside that pours in through the windows. But if it were to be pitch black, 
then if I were to turn on the tiniest of light, it would shine all the more brightly against the backdrop of that darkness. Well, such, I think, is the nature of what Luke has to report about Paul's shipwreck, especially against the backdrop of Lucretius's little book. And so what I want us to do is we first want to look at three things, or we want to look at three things, and I was able to pull off the alliteration here, so I'm especially proud of myself today. First, we want to look at what Lucretius has to say, what Lucretius has to say. Secondly, we want to see what Luke has to say. And then third and finally, we want to see that the whole point of all of this is love, the love of God. So we want to look at Lucretius, Luke, and then give thought to God's love. Well, what Lucretius believed is that far too many people lived in fear as they went about their ordinary lives because especially of the unpredictability of life. You know, perhaps this is something that we ourselves sometimes think about. Who of us could have predicted the chaos of the last two years, for example, with the virus and whatnot? Not to mention the fact that, oh no, on the horizon there's another variant. You know, what's going to happen with that? It's unpredictable. And so Lucretius says, rather than trembling in the darkness like scared children, he says, if you simply understood the way that the world works, it would dispel your fear and your gloom. And so first and foremost, Lucretius argued that the world had not been made by any divine being. He rejected the existence of God. He rejected the existence of the gods, whether of the Christian claims of the scriptures or of the Greek claims of the philosophers. And rather, he simply believed that we lived in a material world where all of these tiny particles, these atoms, swirled all about. And so what this means is he denies the doctrine of providence. There is no divine control of any of the events that we see in the world around us. The gods did not create, and thus there are no gods to control the world. And so what he says here is he says this means that we are free to cast away and to cast off any ideas that there is a divine being or beings controlling the things that unfold in the world. In fact, far from providentially controlling the worlds, he would say that if the gods existed, which they don't, they would be indifferent to us. They would not care for us because we would be insignificant in their estimation. So he denies providence. Second, here is that Lucretius believes that if the gods did not create the world and they do not control it, it was therefore foolish to attribute anything to their power. And in particular, he says, it's therefore irrational to pray to the gods. Think of it, if they don't control anything, if there's no providence, if they don't even exist, then there is no one to cry out to in prayer. And I want you to listen to this particular illustration because I can't help but think that this is why Luke includes the account that he does. Lucretius writes this in his book on the nature of things. When also the supreme violence of a furious wind upon the sea sweeps over the waters, uh, the chief admiral of a fleet with his mighty legions and elephants 
Does he not crave the God's peace with vows? Does he not in his panic seek with prayers the peace of the winds and favoring breezes? But all in vain, since nonetheless he is often caught up in the furious hurricane and driven upon the shoals of death. He says, imagine the admiral of a navy. He is there with his soldiers and his elephants, essentially tanks loaded onto the boats. And as the storm is tossing his fleet to and fro, he says he cries out to the gods, hoping that they will somehow deliver him. But what he does not realize is that there are no gods that will deliver him. And instead, his vessels will be dashed upon the rocks. So he denies providence. He denies prayer. But then third, he also denies miracles. If the gods did not create, if they do not control the events that unfold in the world, and prayer to them is a vain thing, then of course the gods don't intervene, and they don't produce miraculous answers to prayer. Lucretius believed that if the gods exist, they wouldn't dare disturb the tranquility of their rest. Moreover, what Lucretius wanted people to understand is that what we might perceive and think was a miraculous event was simply our own ignorance as to how the world works. And what we wouldn't recognize is that that event that we thought was the answer to our prayer was simply the random collision of atoms that happened to uh, bring about events that were to our benefit rather than to our detriment. And so he says, the things that unfold in this world are not miraculous. They do not belong to the actions of the gods. So the gods are not in control, there is no providence, they do not exist. It is senseless and it is pointless, therefore, to pray to them. And they do not give us any type of miraculous answers to our prayers. There are no such things as miracles. It's simply the random collision of the, uh, of the atomic world around us. All right, so this brings us to Luke, secondly. And that Luke's account of Paul's journey across the sea, in one sense, if we're considering the literature of the ancient world, uh, is not necessarily all that uh, uncommon. You know, if you've read Homer's Odyssey, there's a you know, dramatic sea voyage there where uh, Odysseus suffers shipwreck and he's befriended by the Phaeacians who help him along the way. But unlike Odysseus, who was at the whim of the gods on Mount Olympus, Paul is in the hands of the one true living God. Paul leaves on his journey, but the ship's owner ignored Paul's warnings about the dangers that they faced there, and he says that in verse 10. He says, don't go. Now, this isn't just simply Paul looking out upon a tumultuous sea, being fearful. Paul was an experienced uh, you know, traveler upon the sea. He knew when were the right times to travel, when it was inadvisable, when it was advisable, what the seasons were. And so he was saying, uh, this isn't a good idea. This isn't a good idea. And so naturally, they soon encountered unfriendly seas. The rough seas were upon them, and so they took significant efforts 
to try to ride out the storm. They secured the ship's boat in verse 16. They jettisoned the cargo in verse 18. They threw the tackle overboard in verse 19. And by the third day, Luke reports in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, it's, it's sometimes I think it's difficult for us to envision some of these things. I, I, I've i told this account before, but my father once told me that when he was a teenager, a young teenager, that he and his friend took their outboard boat on a trip uh, from uh, Fort, Fort Lauderdale, right around Boca Raton, out to one of the closest uh, islands in the Bahamas, which was Bimini. And it took them a, a number of hours to get there, and they didn't check the weather report to come back. And when they got out into the open seas to get back, he says it was absolutely terrifying. He says you would chug up one side of the swell and go down into the other side of the swell, and you would look all around you. And he says it was just a wall of water all around you, 10 to 15 feet high, as they would chug up and down the swells in order to get back to home. Those are the kinds of the waters in which Paul and his seafaring uh, companions encountered, but it wasn't the type that was kind of maybe easy sailing. The sea was taking them for a crazy ride. And so it's in the face of these terribly storm-tossed oceans that Luke tells us of the speech that Paul makes. And we see this in verses 21 and following. Men... You should have listened to me. Now, he's not saying, I told you so. I told you so. He's saying, don't ignore me a second time. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this loss and uh, injury and loss. Yet I now urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, speeches like this, again, were common in ancient literature. They're common in the works of Homer and his Odyssey in Virgil's Aeneid. But the speech givers are usually announcing impending doom. All is lost. However, Paul here gives a speech of hope. But do you see another contrast here? In that Luke's account runs completely against the claims of Lucretius, who believed that the gods were indifferent to the world's events and sufferings. There are no gods, says Paul, says Luke. There's only one God. There's only one God. And this one God has sent a messenger to tell Paul that all would be well. In other words, he's saying there is a God who exists, and this God is in providential control over everything that happens in the creation. Unlike Lucretius's gods, who were not in control of the world's event because of the random swerving of the atoms um, that ruled over, over people's lives, the one true God providentially was caring for Paul and all who were aboard the stricken vessel. In God's providence, Paul would eventually stand before Caesar, and so God promised to save him and to see him through this storm, to get him to his final destination. 
And if you think about it, this is a, 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 a staggering claim for Paul to make were it not for the fact that it came from an angel, an angel of God. You know, I've, I've told you this before and over the years is that my daughter will pray at, at night when she goes to bed. Oh, Lord, please don't let any ants crawl in my ears, no spiders to crawl in my bed. She has this great fear of bugs. I have no idea why. And we have an exterminator, you know, so, you know, we're killing those bugs all the time and they don't get in the house that I know of. <laughs> and I'll say, it's going to be fine. You've slept in your bed for over a thousand days now. Has anything bad ever happened? No, but you don't know if something won't happen tonight. I said, you know, and I say, look, statistics are on my side, okay? She knows I can't promise what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't promise what's going to happen within the next few hours, but Paul confidently can. God is sovereignly in control of everything, says Paul, and I will be delivered and all of you will be delivered with me because our God is the God of providence. But we can secondly say here that Paul's God is also the God of prayer. As Paul prays on two different occasions, Luke records that the journey reached its 14th night. I can't imagine. I mean, you think, you know, around here, it's like in California, we didn't really have that many storms. Every once in a while, something would blow up from Mexico. But here, it seems that, you know, the, the, the storms come regularly up the Gulf and up into the southern, southeastern region. But I can't imagine a storm parking out over, say, Mississippi or the Gulf Coast or something for 14 days. So this is basically a storm that was brewing out on the sea, and Paul's ship was just caught in it couldn't get out of it. And so naturally, you see in verse 29, Paul and his companions prayed for day to come. It's like, please, O oh Lord, deliver us out of this. Deliver us out of this. But remember, Lucretius said praying to the gods was pointless because the gods are indifferent to our sufferings if they even exist. But Paul prayed both for daylight to come, and he also gave thanks in prayer for the food that they ate. Verse 35, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. You see, Paul trusted in God's message to him from the angel, and he told his fellow travelers there in verse 34, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He trusted in God's providence. And he therefore gave thanks for the food. I mean, think of it. We might be in a mindset. We're like, I don't have much of anything to give thankful for. I've been out on this sea for 14 days. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm seasick. I, I'm angry. But not Paul. Paul knew that God was caring for him in spite of all of these things. That God was preserving his life. And so he gives thanks. You see, God does care about us. He tells us to pray to him. And moreover, the God of the heavens and earth, the God that has created all that exists, hears us. And so he says to pray to him. Paul writes in Romans eight twenty six and following, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
This is why, unlike Lucretius, who said, don't bother praying, Paul prays, not once, but two different times. Third and finally, here in terms of this point as to everything that Luke tells us, we know the rest of the story. As God safely delivered Paul and his fellow travelers, you could say that it was a miraculous deliverance. It wasn't just simply the random collision of atomic particles that brought Paul and his companions safely to the island. This is not to say that their deliverance was easy. They had to, you know, they ran aground upon a a reef and then they had to swim their way to shore. I can remember being uh, going surfing one morning, and, and it was January, so the water was cold. And but in order for it to get good waves, it had to be a little rough. And I got held under what seemed like for at least thirty seconds. It was probably five. And uh, I just remember coming up out of that water because I, I kept on trying to get to the surface and I couldn't. Finally, had to just relax, and I floated to the surface naturally. And when I finally could get a gasp of air, I said, "I'm done for the day." I don't want to be out here. <laughs> it's cold. I'm wet. I'm scared. And I went in and my friends, you know, who were out there a further ways out said, hey, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to sit right here on the beach. I'm just going to, I'm no more, you know, if the Lord wanted me to surf, he would have put a surfboard on my feet. He didn't. So I'm sitting right here. I suspect that's how Paul and his companions felt. Tired, cold, wet, maybe frightened, exhausted, but safe. Safe and alive as God had promised them. Moreover, contrary to Lucretius, this wasn't a deliverance that was attributable simply to the random collision of atoms, but rather because God himself had promised to deliver them. And he made good on that promise. But you know, and we didn't read this, if you go a little bit further into the narrative, Paul was foraging for for firewood. Uh, as they undoubtedly wanted to get warm. And as he was foraging for firewood, he reached down, grabbing uh, some, some, some brush and some sticks to burn, and a viper comes out and bit him on the hand. We don't know what kind of viper this was, but the locals probably called it a two-step. It bites you, you take two steps, and then you die. And because they said, aha, look, he escaped the sea. But this criminal who must have been obviously guilty of something didn't escape fate. Or Lucretius might have said, see, aha, look, there's the swerve. He survives this random shipwreck and now he thinks that God has delivered him only to have a serpent bite him. And now he's going to die. But yet what did God promise to do for Paul? He promised to deliver him. And so the serpent bit Paul. To no ill effect. To no ill effect. So contrary, contrary to Lucretius, we worship the God of providence. We pray to the God of providence because we know that our God is sovereign over everything. The God who not only can deliver us through natural means, but who can also deliver us from Uh, or by supernatural means, through miraculous interventions on his part. This brings us third and finally to love. We've looked at what Lucretius said, what Luke has told us about Paul's shipwreck, and now we want to give final thought here to love. 
And that as we reflect upon Paul's shipwreck, it's important that we don't lose the scope of the larger story. I think Luke undoubtedly wants to prove the uh, false Epicurean ideas about the gods. He wants to prove them wrong. But I think his apologetic aims are not merely negative. In other words, let me just show you everything that's wrong with Epicurean belief. Let me show you what's wrong with Lucretius. Rather, I think Luke's goals are ultimately positive, and they draw our gaze upon Christ. You see, when Paul was arrested and he stood before the council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that night Christ personally came to him and told him in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, to, uh, uh, testify about me in Rome. In other words, Christ personally says, I'm going to send you to, the, to Rome. So that everything in Paul's life was focused about his testimony about the gospel of Christ. Christ was at the heart of everything that was unfolding in Paul's life. So the the providential care of God was ultimately about Jesus. And Luke's apologetic aims, therefore, are not just simply about defending the idea about God and his existence, and providence, and prayer, and miracles, but it's ultimately focused upon Jesus. Providence, prayer, and miracles are not about Paul or God generically, but they are rather all about God's love for fallen sinners like us, and his revelation of the gospel, and conforming us to Christ's image. This is what Paul says on the heels of when he explains the purpose and nature of prayer. When we read, for example, in verses 26 and 27 of Acts chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we pray, when we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for. Paul then goes on to say in verses 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The events in Paul's life, even especially here in this shipwreck, were not only about getting him to Rome, but they were also about conforming him to the image of Christ. Everything in his life was about being conformed to the image of Christ. Moreover, that's what we can say about God's providence in our lives. I suspect that for many of us, these past two years have been such that it seems as if we're in the midst of that seemingly non-ending storm upon the sea where our, the vessel of our life is being tossed to and fro upon these stormy waters. And we might think, where are you, God? Why don't you deliver me from this storm? When will all of the chaos end? And maybe sometimes we might begin to think like the Epicurean Lucretius, where we might think maybe God isn't in control. Maybe it's all random. You know, sometimes you can look back upon your life and you can say, well, I can see God's hand in this. You can see how the Lord brought you to some place, brought someone into your life, healed you from something, and you can say, okay, Lord, I can see your hand. But other times when it comes to providence, 
we look upon it and we think, Lord, I got no idea what you're doing here. I can't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. I've looked back upon this event the past 10, 20, 30 years. It still doesn't make any sense. I still don't understand it. And yet, if we reflect upon what happens here with Paul and his shipwreck, we can nevertheless say that we may not understand it always, but we certainly know that God is still in control. And not only is he still in control, but he is bringing us safely to our destination, which is to enter into the heavens itself and to behold the face of God and the face of Christ. Think of it, every single event in your life is providentially aimed at that goal. You know, it was Jesus who tells us in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 6 not to be anxious about our lives. What we are to eat or what we are to drink, what we are to put on. Jesus says, is not life more than about food and clothing? He says, look to the birds of the air. Look to the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, Jesus says. And then Jesus puts this pointed question, are you not worth more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed such as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, says Jesus, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not so much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And Jesus interestingly says, for the Gentiles worry about such things. People like Lucretius ends up worrying about such things. Because your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What have I said? That the providence of God is all about our conformity unto Christ. Seek, therefore, his righteousness. Where do we find this righteousness? But in Christ himself. In the midst of our trials, because we know that our God is a God of providence, it means that we can cry out to him in prayer. We can cry out to him in prayer, knowing that Christ intercedes for us and that the Spirit carries our concerns into the very throne of God. Our God is not indifferent to our suffering. I mean, there are three answers to the prayers. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And the one that I find the most difficult, which is sometimes he says, wait, not yet. Oh, why? Why do we have to wait? Why do we have to wait? Because it's in the waiting where he is conforming us to the image of Christ. Moreover, not only do we know that God is the God of providence, he is the God of prayer, but he is also the God of miracles. You know, in our own Westminster Confession of the Faith, it says in chapter 5, paragraph 3, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So we pray to the God of creation and providence and the God of miracles to intervene on our behalf. 
And we can say, Lord, whether you choose to intervene by natural or supernatural and miraculous means, it's up to you. But please, O oh Lord, intervene. And we can know that he can and will. But remember, in God's providential care of us, he's not just simply moving pieces of a chessboard all around, indifferent to our sufferings or to our trials. Rather, remember what Paul says, in love... He predestined us in Christ, and in love, he is bringing us to the shores of the new heavens and the new earth. And as he delivered Paul, he will deliver us too. Never forget, in all of this, that all of God's sovereign plan has passed through the nail-scarred hands of Christ, who has loved us, who loves us now, and will love us still yet. And so that in the midst of all of the challenges that we face, forget not the providential love of God in Christ. If Professor Greenblatt is right about the influence of Lucretius's on the nature of things, and I think he's got a point, this means that, that, that some of the roots of our culture's unbelief are not new, and they just go back into the ancient days. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And if Lucretius is still relevant, then it means that Luke's account here in, in the book of Acts is still relevant. And in the end, it means that the gospel of Christ was, is, and forever will be relevant as long as there are sinners needing salvation. God is not indifferent towards us, but sovereignly ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And yet we can and must pray to God in Christ through the Spirit to both save us and to see us safely to our heavenly home. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, so often it is difficult for us to understand why and how uh, you do things. We want answers and we don't get them. We want different outcomes and because we think we know better. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us, Lord, for our short-sightedness. Forgive us for our impatience. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are the God of miracles, that you are God of our providential care, that every single waking moment and, and sleeping moment of our lives, you watch over us, and that if the lilies of the fields are so splendorously uh, clothed, not even uh, Solomon's glory can match it, help us to remember that you care for us thusly. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we pray and cry out to you in prayer, that you would give unto us the spirit of Christ, that you would make us more like Christ, that you would see us safely through to our journey's end, but as you do so, that you would make us patient, that you would give us greater eyes of faith, that you would give us peace in the midst of the storms of life, that therefore we would not fear, but rather we would trust in your fatherly care, and remember that you have loved us with an incomparable love that you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.